Well, this is the Only One Shot Golf Podcast, and I'm Jim Gallagher, Jr., and I have a special guest today that uh, I can't wait for everybody to get to know him. You've heard him uh, on the first tee of many U.S. Opens, starting at Shinnecock, 1986, for almost 25 years, and finished up at Pebble Beach in 2010, which was won by Graham McDowell. He's the author of the book, Starting the U.S. Open, From Shinnecock to Pebble Beach. Let's welcome my friend, Mr. Ron Reed. Ron, thanks for spending well, some time with us. What a pleasure. And, um, you know, over the years, uh, I worked with a lot of good guys, good guy pros, and you're right at the top. Well, thank you. Sometimes, you know, i got to tell a story, and I don't know if you remember it, but I was at my first U.S. Open, and I had signed up for a local caddy, and I was new, first pro, first time playing, and I had forgotten I did it, and I had brought in a, a tour caddy with me who I made through the qualifier, and I got there, and the local caddy's there, but you handled it so professionally, way better than I did. Uh, and and uh, if I could tell my younger self some things, it's like, all right, take a chill pill, take a deep breath, and everything's going to be all right. Uh, but you were there to kind of keep things mellow and, and everything cooled off. But uh, you were always great. And it's always fun. When you got on that first tee, that was the scariest shot in golf for most people. And, and you got to see so many of them. Uh, but you, 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 when you go back and look at it, uh, did you have to have any pinch me moments sometimes when you thought, Hey, I'm the starter at the U S uh, open. Jim, I had that feeling every time I looked at the assignment sheet every year and to see my name, you know, at the top there is starting the U S open. Uh, I said, you know, how did this happen from, a from a really humble beginning and, uh, uh, somehow, uh, in 1986, uh, Frank Hannigan uh, gave me a microphone. And he said, uh, uh, "You're going to be starting the U.S. Open. Welcome to Showbiz." <laughs> <And that laughs> no, was, it, yeah, no, no training. Here you go. Good luck with this. And that's back here when it is, you know. Yeah, and that's back when they started on the first tee. They didn't do the split tees and everything. So you were there all day long. Uh, and, and I always, I mean, I'm doing TV now and I have a hard time pronouncing the names. How were you able to, did you phonetically write things out? How were you able to kind of get those names straight before you started? Did you do that a little bit of homework before you got there? Jim, I, what I did is, uh, you know, I handled player registration. So mm-hmm. I would see the players when they, when they walked in and I'd greet them and get them through the process. And along the way, I'd say, uh, you know, how do you say your name? And how about your hometown? And, um, you know, many of the names, uh, particularly the foreigners, Costantino Rolka. Yeah. Costantino Rolka, roll those R's. And uh, so I had to develop, uh, you know, I would spell it out phonetically, and then I would feed that also to the media people, TV especially, so that we were all on the same page. Yeah, that, that's that's the thing. Saying the name is the same. Yeah, that's smart because that's that's kind of how we've got Brant Packer, who does a lot of our college golf, does the same thing. He'll get out there, ask the coaches, ask the players, and, and sometimes even record it. And sometimes there's a little bit of an accent in there. You, you get in there, but there's so many more international players playing the game now, which is that shows you the, how the, the game has changed and how it's grown so much. But what if you look back at the duties of a starter, what would be the duties of a starter? Because we have them both on the local level, which everybody starts at, to even the U.S. Open. Well, number one, of course, is being on time. And I yeah. would start the players uh, right on the second. I don't remember in uh, all those years, I don't remember missing one starting time by uh, – you know, more than a few seconds. If I was distracted by something, yeah, I might, you know, I might be a few seconds off. But it was important to the tournament to keep 
a regular interval between the players. So that was the importance of being on time. That was number one. I, I tried to tell the players, uh, you know, if there were any changes in the rules. They did, they never read the rule sheet. No. They would stuff that in their bag. No, guilty. <laughs> they, they didn't. Yeah. You didn't want to read all that stuff about temporary movable instructions <laughs> and and all that stuff. So uh, I kept it brief, and I tried to be businesslike and give the U.S. Open the the the, the prestige that it deserved. Uh, if a player wanted to speak, yeah, we would have a nice chat. I would, for example, uh, uh, Lucas Glover and David Duvall. I would, I knew they read a lot, so I would say, hey, have you got a good book? And guess what, they. Nine times out of ten, they had a, a good book that they were reading on the tip of their tongue, and they would share that. So uh, I tried to keep it pretty businesslike. Uh, we introduced the players to the scorer uh-huh. uh, and also the standard bearer so that uh, you know there was a certain element of uh, friendliness there. And, of course, the volunteers liked to meet the players. That was a big deal to them. So I tried to keep it simple. Except when Fuzzy Zeller, maybe a Hubert Green or Jerry Pate showed up. I think it was on day two, maybe Shinnecock. They did something with some T markers. I read a story about. Do you recall that by any chance? Boy, you have <laughs> yeah. gone deep, haven't I? <laughs> you have read this book. Well, they they showed up and uh, and uh, the two clowns, Fuzzy and Hubert, they knew that uh, Jerry wasn't going to be on the tee. He was hurt, and they knew he wasn't going to be there. And they showed up early and. All of a sudden, I was standing there trying to get organized, and I, I heard this laughter in the gallery, which, you know, I might hear that at the, the old Crosby Pro-Am, mm-hmm. but not at the U.S. Open. You know, it's serious stuff. And um, I looked up, and each of them had a, had a tee marker, and they had marched to what we then called the ladies' tees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those two boys aren't right. <laughs> and they, they put the markers in the ground, I so I decided to have some fun with it, and I yelled security, and everybody was laughing. And then I realized, wait a minute, we got a serious situation with regard to the rules. They've changed the golf course. Oh boy! So the good news is we put little white dots down on where the tees belong, and I just made a command decision. I didn't call PJ Boatwright or anybody else. I just said, I'm just going to put those markers back. And we'll pretend this didn't happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll ask for forgiveness yeah. later. <laughs> no. No, there were times when, when we had fun, and uh, it wasn't always all business. Yeah, Lee Trevino was another guy that would come into mind uh, with that for sure. But let, let's get a little background of you. We we talked about a little bit on the starter, but give us a little background. You grew up just outside of Chicago. Uh, tell us a little about your background, how you got to Monterey Peninsula. What a beautiful place. One of my favorite places on earth. Well, I was uh, from the west side, uh, LaGrange, Illinois, and uh, played baseball mostly. Mm. And then they put me on the basketball team just to keep me in shape for baseball. So <laughs> I occupied the end of the bench. And, and uh, But uh, I played baseball throughout high school and had a chance to play in college, but I went to Drake University, and I gave up baseball for good. So, And then um, along the way, when I graduated, guess what? I got a draft notice, mm. and I went. I went to uh, Chicago to take a physical, and I, by gosh, I passed the physical. Long story short, I end up at the Presidio of Monterey, the language school in uh, Monterey, California, yep. for two years as a draftee. 
And I looked around and I said, you know, this is a nice place to live. And, <laughs> and I, had, I, I had met my wife-to-be, and she said, well, I'm not going to Chicago. I want to stay here. So I looked around, and, well, first of all, the U.S. Army was the, one of the luckiest uh, events in my life that I got to stay in Monterey. But I looked around for that day when I got out of the Army and got married, and I interviewed at the Northern California Golf Association, headquartered at Pebble Beach. They built Spyglass Hill Golf Course yep. and done some innovative things, and I was lucky. I got hired, uh, and I, I learned from the ground up, believe me. I spent 10 years doing everything from running tournaments to uh, uh, did helping develop a new handicap system and a new course rating system that's used by the USGA today. And along the way, uh, I got a call from the USGA, and they asked me to join them. So about 10 or 11 years later, I joined the USGA in 1981, and I became the uh, director of the Western Region. I once went, Jim, from Alaska, Hawaii, all the way to Texas. Wow. uh, Representing the USGA with state and regional golf associations. That is amazing. I was a busy boy. Yeah, and the USGA had a big women's event up in Alaska. Uh, this past summer, and that was great to see them get out there. And it just shows you how the game has, has changed. But you went to Alaska. I've never been to Alaska here. It's one of the prettiest places uh, uh, in the world to go up there and golf. Uh, uh, hopefully we can continue to grow it up there. That's an amazing uh, a, a opportunity for us to grow some the golfers up there. But well, the season's a little short, but uh, that's a pretty big territory to be traveling and covering. Uh, well, we'll I was go- big on the airlines. Oh, sure. I bet you were. So when you get with the USGA, what were some of those assignments early on that you really thought, hey, this is something I've really enjoyed? What was one of your favorite parts of that? Well, it was just meeting and uh, dealing with uh, really good people that the game attracts. That's mm-hmm. just the way the golf is. And In my book, I say uh, golf is your passport to friendship. And isn't that true? Yeah, no and, doubt. Uh, you know, every night I, uh, I I try to count my friends through golf rather than count sheep before I put my head or when I put my head on the pillow. And it's so true that, you know, just good people are attracted to the game. And that was the best part. And along the way, I, uh, I uh, brought in hundreds of volunteers to serve the USGA. At one time they had, I think, 1,500 volunteers. And, you know, I probably had a hand in and bringing uh, several hundred of them into serving the game, helping with no uh, no recompense. They didn't get paid. Right. One of the really, really fun things was taking the USGA to uh, championship sites, places they'd never been. And, for example, Great Falls, Montana, and Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and Kalispell, Montana, and uh, various places like that. So... Um, over the years, I was lucky to work over a hundred national championships. Wow. And, you know, I was, I, I was lucky developed relationships with courses and who eventually invited the USGA to bring a week long event to that community. And, you know, I'm proud of that. Yeah, absolutely. She should be, you know, it takes hundreds and hundreds of volunteers to put on, you know, just a, a regular U.S. Women's Am or a U.S. Am, and then you put the U.S. Open in there, and it just gets unbelievable the people that it takes to run it. And it's such a fine-tuned machine, and people don't realize it. It's like doing TV. People don't realize 
if they sat in that truck, they wouldn't know how anything got on TV uh, when you look at it. You mentioned sites. How does the USGA or how, how do you pick out maybe where we're going to maybe look at somewhere for a U.S. AM or a U.S. Uh, junior or even a U.S. Open? How do they go through that process uh, of maybe looking at sites? Well, I'll share only one, and I write about it in, in the book, and that is Chambers Bay. Mm. Uh, over the years, well, it, it, for me, it began in 1982 at Portland Golf Club, mm-hmm. the U.S. Senior Open, where Arnold Palmer played at the U.S. Senior Open. And uh, I, saw that, I, I saw that the Northwest just had a special feeling about the game of golf. Seattle, Portland, Oregon, all over there. They had a great feeling for golf, and uh, and so I learned along the way that the U.S. Open had never been to the Pacific Northwest. So uh, I embarked on a on an unofficial search. No one ever gave me orders to go find a U.S. Open site, but I just went out and, and did it. And I got with guys like Peter Jacobson. I said, "Have you built anything that could hold hold the U.S. Open?" And by golly, he had Oregon Golf Club. Maybe mm-hmm. he played it. Did you? Yeah, did you I've, I did, I've played. I've played Oregon Golf Club. Wonderful place. Pete used yeah, to have his yeah. uh, his uh, Fred Meyer Challenge, and I've played uh, Peter's Party. Yeah, Peter's Party. And it was that. Yeah. So I I embarked on this search, and uh, I went to Bandon, Oregon, and and up into Washington. Freddie Couples recommended Newcastle Golf Club to mm-hmm. me, and I looked at Sahali and. And along the way, uh, I really hadn't found it yet. That is a, a site I thought that would be a good U.S. Open site. But uh, in, I believe, 2005 at a Christmas party, Robert Trent Jones, the architect, um, said, you know, you ought to look at this pile of sand I have up there south of uh, Tacoma. And, it, and so I got up there with uh, John Ladenberg, who was the county executive, and Bobby Jones, and I looked at 940 acres of sand, mm. and I turned to them and I said, "We build it day one to hold the U.S. Open." And about less than two years later, the USGA decided to have the U.S. Amateur there. Yep. In 2010, and then five years later, they announced that the U.S. Open would be at Chambers Bay, and that was one of the happiest moments of my golf life. And um, it was a great event. I know there were some agronomic issues uh, that have now been uh, uh, resolved up there, and I would be surprised and disappointed if somehow a major event didn't go back there to Chambers Bay. It's a great golf course. Well, we just had the U.S. Women's Am, and I can attest that it, it was so much fun to watch. It was, it was hard. It's hard to walk now, I'm not going to lie. Uh, but it was no. uh, the views were breathtaking. Uh yeah. Just to sit there and look at this piece of land, and you're looking out there, and and you look back at the compound, going like, "All right, how am I getting back there?" Uh, but every hole was different; it all was unique. It was a different form of playing, and they could actually play the ball on the ground, which you know we get in the states saying, "Oh, we got link style golf." Well, we really don't. We keep it too soft. But that that place was about as close to it as you can. And man, the weather was fantastic and, and got a great champion out of there. But it, it, it has improved, as most golf courses do. They get better and better after time. People didn't like TPC Sawgrass. Uh, you know, they, Gosh, you know, and now they do. They didn't like Spyglass nope. when it was built. 1966, they hated it. And now, I, I don't know that it's their favorite, but it, 
uh, I'll bet they enjoy coming there. Oh, absolutely. That golf course was so hard, as you know, so especially when we're playing it in February uh, in, in, the, in the Crosby there, or the AT&T, as we call it. But uh, you mentioned a book. Yeah. Let's go ahead and talk about that. Why did you mention, or write the book? And uh, tell us a little bit about it. Well, uh, along the way, I had a lot of things happen. All good, I might say, in starting the U.S. Open. And, and I mentioned it to a, a, a fellow who published books. And he said, you have a book there. So I began um, to compile stories, many of which are my mistakes that I made along the way. <laughs> and I, one of the things I learned was to laugh at myself because there I was. I had no eraser. If I made a mistake with that microphone, it went out over the world, and and <laughs> there's not much I could do about it. I understand so that. I, and uh, along <laughs> along the way, um, I mean, how lucky was I? I started uh, Arnold in his last U.S. Open in '94 at Oakmont, and Jack in his last U.S. Open in 2000 at Pebble Beach, and of course Payne Stewart uh, in '99 at Pinehurst. So. Uh, you know, I, I, there I was up close and personal with the, some of the greatest golfers that ever played the game. And I might add that none of that rubbed off on my golf game. But, <laughs> uh, no, I I was, a, you know, a, one of the luckiest people uh, ever to, to have that assignment. So uh, I, I wrote, um, as I said, a lot about my mistakes. And I can share, uh, can I share one? Absolutely. I've, I've got a couple people I'm going to ask about, but knock it out. Go ahead. Well, in 1992, uh, I won't give you the whole story. You can read the book, but the, uh, I got to special introductions and I introduced Joe Carr, mm-hmm. captain of the Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St. Andrews, Scotland. And here's what came out of my mouth from Dublin, England. Oh boy. <laughs> and uh, there there was no laughter. There was, you know, kind of a chuckle. And then I turned around and it was Joe Carr smiling. And I realized my mistake and I corrected myself. Of course, I said Dublin, Ireland. <laughs> and the next to speak, the next to speak live worldwide was Peter Ellis. Oh, announcer. gosh, I love Peter. He was the best. And what did he say? He says, wars have started over less. <laughs> That's true. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I live in the southeast, true. I understand. <laughs> well, I, you know, the, the beauty of that was I went to David Fay, who was my boss, and I said, David, I never asked for this job. You can have it. I just embarrassed myself and the USGA, and, and uh, you can have He said, no, 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 you know, relax, think about it. And I did. And a couple of days later, I had a funny thing happen as a result of uh, this mistake, and the good news was I learned to laugh at myself. I realized, yeah. you know, you can make a lot of mistakes in life, and this one's not life-threatening. So uh, from then on, I, I, uh, I learned to laugh at myself. You mentioned Jack Nicklaus. The, well, we can argue whether he's the greatest of all time. Uh, but I always ask my listeners what separates that elite player from the rest, and you have seen for years, some of the elite players. I mean, what makes a Jack Nicklaus or an Arnold Palmer or a Watson or Payne Stewart, you mentioned Tiger Woods, what makes these guys elite from what you see? And you've seen them on the first tee and you've been around them for years. 
Well, your your last podcast, I listened to that question to uh, Scotty Shuffer's caddy. Yeah, Teddy Scott. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I found that intriguing. And and my boss at the NCGA, Bob Hanna, told me this story about John Brody. You remember John? Yes, absolutely. Was a heck of a player too, not just football. A great football player in the NFL, and uh, also a great golfer. Yes. And he and he and Tony Lima, the great uh, professional who had won the Open and so on, uh, they were traveling across Texas from one site to the next, and they'd run out of things to talk about in the car in this long drive. And John uh, John Brody turned to Tony and says, "Tony, what's the difference?" And Lima said, "John, what are you talking about? What's the difference?" He said, "Well." What's the difference between you and me? You're winning, and I'm not. And Tony looked at John, and he said, John, you think you can beat me, but I know I can beat you. Wow. Wow. And, you know, when you look back at the careers of uh, Jack, you know, Jack, what did he once say? Uh, When I came to the U.S. Open, there were 10 guys that I thought I had to beat. Yeah. And I have to believe, I've never sat down with Tiger and discussed this, but I have to believe that Tiger knew he was the best. And, you know, that, that says a great deal. And You know, I mean, you're a great player. And if I said to, who, to you, who are the greatest putters that you ever saw? You know what I bet you, or I think you'd say, they knew they could make just about anything. Oh, absolutely. Confidence. It's, it's, it's that thing, that confidence that uh, some have, and many of them get sports psychologists today trying to develop it. Yeah. So. My wife, Sissy, was playing in uh, Virginia Grimes, who played on the Curtis Cup team, and fantastic player in the finals of the U.S. or no, sorry, the Mississippi uh, Am. And Sissy's little grandmother might have been 89 or 90, and they were sitting there, and she read in the paper, she read the article to her grandmother, and she said, well, you know the difference, Sissy? is she thinks you can beat her. And I thought, wow, that was pretty thoughtful. Not, you know, if she thinks you can beat her, then you got to believe you can beat her. So there's a lot to be said about that same statement in just a little different way of saying it, because I don't think Tiger Woods ever thought anybody could beat him. I don't think Jack Nicklaus no. thought anybody could beat him. I, and I think that's a, no. great, a great answer to that question. But you mentioned yeah. uh, Arnold Palmer's last uh, U.S. Open at Oakmont. I was there. It was unbelievable. It was amazing. Uh, what he had done for golf and to see his interview and, and the impact that he had. And, and he was one of the few guys, and I was always maybe a little more comfortable around Jack, that even I, who can talk to a wall, was nervous and, and just like in awe of, of Arnold because of my parents growing up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, passing through his hometown to see my grandparents uh, for years and just the, the impact he had on the game. But, uh, there was a, uh, you know, he drives the green to cherry Hills. I mean, he does all these amazing things. Uh, do you have a favorite, there's sort of thousands of favorite stories with Arnold, but there's one that maybe stands out. Well, uh, one of them that I don't tell in the book happened in Scotland when, uh, I'll, I'll be, I'll shorten the story, but he, he was struggling physically. This was in, uh, 2004 and he, he, uh, he walked about three-eighths of a mile. He was really struggling. And he said to the, to the three uh, uh, players he was with, uh, fellas, I'll be back in a minute. I had told him that uh, there was a special group that I was supposed to be in uh, playing about a half a mile away from where, where we were. Anyway, he and I 
walked about that half a mile and he got there and he, and um, one of them, the, the player who was playing so well was Trip Keeney. Yeah. Great amateur from Dallas, right? And the three players turned around and, and Trip turns around and, and there's little Ron Reed and Arnold Palmer. And Arnold looks at Trip and he says, um, Trip, by the way, is seven under par on a golf course he's never seen. <laughs> he Jeez. turns around and he sees Arnold and he says, hey, I hear you're playing pretty good. <laughs> and you know, I mean, you, you couldn't make the guy up. No, you know, he uh, he was just sensational. Another, when I was writing the book, I took my son to Bay Hill, mm-hmm. and again, long story short, um, we got to the end of what I wanted to talk about, and I said, Arnold, young man here, I'll bet he has something that you'll never have. And Arnold said, Well, what's that? I said, A hole in one at one of your clubs. Hmm. And Arnold says, geez, I'm a member of 400 clubs. Which one? And I pointed to the red membership book at Cypress Point. And he thought for a minute. He said, at Cypress? I said, yes, sir. And then he said, on 16 at Cypress? I said, yes, sir. Ryan Reed made a hole in one. Well, guess what Arnold did? He leaps out of his chair. He goes over. <laughs> and now he wants a picture with my son. That's awesome. That's awesome. That is Arnold. You know, if if you and I were with him, we'd want our picture, right? Absolutely. A picture. Yeah. And uh, in in his last U.S. Open, I, I did one of the dumbest things I've ever done in my life. I, I gave him a lecture. Oh gosh. He was almost late. He was almost late the first day. And when he came back for his final round, I had taken the decision of the decisions of golf. It said player A, B, and C must all be there at the same time, ready to play. And I underlined it. And he read that statement. Why I had to point it out to him, I'll never know. <laughs> he read it, and he said, well, I had my putter. That's all I had. But if you'd introduced me, I'd, I'd hit, hit it. it from here. <laughs> I'd have hit it. And he would have. <laughs> and he would have. Oh, that's no, awesome! You, you you couldn't make Arnold Palmer up. He was he without doubt the best best ever. Yeah, his last I think it was the last senior open was at Dayton at NCR, and my wife Sissy drove yeah. my son Thomas might have been ten down from my parents' house in Indiana to see one of their friends play. Reed Hughes, who was a club pro, was playing, and and then just so happened Arnold was there, so they went out and watched. And as Arnold was doing his final press conference. My wife was telling Thomas to sneak up and maybe get his autograph. Well, next thing I know, Thomas is sitting, standing next to Arnold while he's doing his press conference, and he doesn't see him there. And if somebody in the media said, is that like one of your grandkids? And he looks down and goes, I don't know this young man. And so he introduced himself right there to Thomas. Uh, it was so precious and, and priceless that no. my son will always remember that. And, and it's just one of those moments. And I sent him a note, said, hey, you made a little 10-year-old's day. You know, he – knew golf and, and, and liked it, but he said, I said, you know, that little meeting made him love it, and I think that's one of the beauties of, of Arnold uh, Palmer, no question yep. about it. But Tom Watson chips in at 17 uh, at Pebble Beach, great competitor, uh, and then, of course, uh, Bruce Edwards is caddy, and I know there's a story of the flag that's in the book. If you want to discuss that yeah. a little bit, give us a little hint there because you're going to need to get the book to read the whole story, but tell us that story with the flag from 17. 
Well, I had the flag for 22 years, I think. And, and uh, you know, I just threw it in a drawer and forgot about it. And, and then I took it to uh, uh, the U.S. Open there in uh, Chicago. And I thought I would give it to Tom. And here he is in his last U.S. Open, and Bruce, of course, is not going to make it. He's got ALS. And on Sunday morning, I decided I, I still hadn't given him the flag, so I took it with me to the first tee, and Bruce walked up. Tom wasn't in sight. And I presented the flag to um, to Bruce. He says, what is this? I said, that's the flag from 1982. And he got really emotional, and I got emotional. Oh, yeah. And here are two good two guys crying on the first tee of the U.S. Open. And here came Tom, and Tom kind of looked, and he's trying to figure out what was going on. I said, Tom, uh, I just gave Bruce the flag. Did I do the right thing? And Tom looked at me and he said, you did the right thing. Wow. So uh, the next day the flag was auctioned uh, in Kansas City, charity for ALS, and uh, guess who got it? Tom Watson bought the flag. <laughs> wow. Such a cool story. <laughs> That is that yeah. is isn't that wild? You had it for all those years, and, and then yeah, it's I just, forgot about it. Well, the good Lord puts us in places that sometimes we don't always know why, uh, and and that's one of those situations for sure. But uh, Payne Stewart, Pinehurst, I believe this story is mm-hmm. you were on the tee there. Something about a pair of scissors you needed to borrow. You've had a lot of probably requ- silly, crazy requests. That had to be one of the strangest yeah. ones. That was the strangest. Um... And uh, I looked at him, and I kind of circled him. I said, well, you don't need a haircut. <laughs> and he, he said, he didn't think that was funny. He said, no, I want to cut the sleeves off. So uh, I dispatched someone to the tennis center, and they came running back. And he uh, he probably, you know, he was a fashion setter anyway, wasn't he? But oh, yeah. He, he cut the sleeves off, and, and the next thing you know, we're all buying these heavy things with no sleeves. But... Um, so he played the round of golf. But the, the thing I'll always remember, you, you've been to Pinehurst, I know, many mm-hmm. times. And there's a church across the street that the chimes are continuous. And, and NBC uh, instructed me to begin the introduction of him and Phil. And playing in the chimes was amazing grace. Wow. And I just made a kind of a command decision. Uh, NBC, you're going to have to wait until that's over. So I kind of paused for a minute and, and let amazing grace finish and then began the introduction. So mm, gave me chills. Um, well, uh, gave me chills on October 25th of that year yeah. when, when we all learned uh, the tragedy and, um, you probably went to his memorial. I did. I, I was actually yeah. here in Jackson, and we sat and watched. We were going to go, and we were actually actually the tournament was going on that week. Of course, we didn't play that day. I'll never forget sitting that morning with Sissy, wondering who it could be. I, you know, we're wondering like, you know, could it be Arnold? Could it be my friend Bruce Liskey was flying to Dallas, and then find out it was Payne. Mm-hmm. And and I knew the other guys on the plane as well. And it just, it just, it just is one of those moments you'll never forget. And and mm-hmm. you know, it just. Who knows what would have happened with Payne uh, as far as Ryder Cups and senior U.S. Opens and all the great things he did. But he touched a lot of people's lives uh, and, and, and was an amazing person. Now, he, you had to have thick skin around him. He would pick on you. He got me several times. Uh, he got me ta- <laughs> where I was wearing the Mississippi hat for uh, tourism and had the camouflage golf bag. And he was 
picking on me pretty hard. And I said, you're the one walking around in knickers. You're going to have to play really well if you play wearing those things. And <laughs> we would go back and forth. And he was just one of those guys that you had to have both your eyes on him uh, because he was an amazing yeah. character. And I know he and Zinger had some fun times together going back and forth and, and, and no question. But we talk about growing the game. And when the game's yep. in pretty good hands, how do we continue to grow the game? I know we've had the Adaptive Open, which was such a cool event the USGA put on. How do we continue to grow the game, get more kids involved? Well, uh, one of the ways, and, and I'm a big advocate of a program called Youth on Course that started out here in Northern California, and now it's in at least 38 states, uh, plus Canada. And it's a program where, uh, kids get access to play the game, and it costs them. It costs them $5 a round, but a golf course will say yes. On off hours, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll have kids play our golf course. And, um, and, and with it comes lessons as well mm-hmm. and caddy opportunities and job opportunities and scholarships to college, not necessarily based on their ability to play the game. So, you know, I put youth on course right at the top of the of the heap of great junior programs. Of course, the first tee as well is another another great program. Caddy programs, uh, you know, the Evans Scholarship uh, Program in Chicago and uh, the WeMet Scholarship Program in the Northeast. Those are great ways to bring kids into the game that not only learn the game, but they learn the proper etiquette and uh, the things that you know maybe you're missing a little bit today with all of the newer golfers that come in they learn to swing right they learn that pretty well but i'm not sure they all learn uh, you know the proper etiquette uh, they learn it from television from watching the pros and and how the pros uh, uh treat the game like a religion right mm-hmm. tapping the sand off their shoes and and those sorts of things so um th- th- those are programs that will I hope grow the game. Don't you think that's the toughest part about growing the game, preserving it as well, is kind of keeping those traditions and not making it stuffy to some of the younger crowd because they want to make it cool. I think these these guys with social media now, uh, even in the college level, uh, it's just the game has changed so much. And we want people to have fun, but still try to preserve some of the traditions we still have out there. And and I think, like you said, if I'm a parent, get your kid out there playing. Uh, Get them out there Spend some time with them. It doesn't matter. They don't have to play, you know, nine holes. Just get out there and spend a little time with them because uh, you'll get Boy, to know your kids, true. no question, for sure. Uh, you now did, you learned the game through your dad. I did. Was he a golf professional? He was 45 yeah. years. He taught my brother and my sister. Uh, I'm passing it on. to. I passed it on to my kids. Three of the four play. My youngest, Elizabeth, had probably the prettiest swing. We call her the legacy breaker because uh, she <laughs> just – she had a little of her daddy running through her. She'd get about three or four holes, get a little angry, and kind of, you know, said, I've had enough of this. But uh, I think now that she's 22 or 23, she may play a little bit. We took her out the other day, and, and, and she'll have some fun, and I think it'll help her. But, all you know, two of my daughters won two state ams. My son played on a high school championship team, and they, they loved the game. I played, spent two days with my son playing and just had just this last week, and it was so much fun to see him play and enjoy it that time together. Uh, that we'll mm-hmm. always have, and, and that's the, the greatest part of this game. It's, I think it's what separates it from the rest, that you can, you can play it forever uh, as long as you physically can get around, and I think that's one of the beauties uh, of our, our game for sure. But uh, I appreciate you being with us. It's been fun catching up. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, anything else you want to add before we uh, maybe call well, it uh, the end? Yeah, I want to. I want to reiterate you. You were. You've always. I always thought of you as one of the really good guys out there. And I'm, I was so happy to see you're in the Hall of Fame in Mississippi. And I think you're in the Hall of Fame with somebody that I used to know quite well, Johnny Pot. Oh, Johnny, love Johnny Pot. Johnny Pot's a, just a top a gentleman. He happens to live here now, live in the Monterey area. But, oh uh, yeah, he does. He sure does. Because uh, Archie Manning sent me a picture. He was out with the, when the Mannings played at Pebble uh, at the AT and T. Had a picture with him. That's right. He does live out there. Really well, just a great gentleman. But. Uh, I'd, I'd like to I'd like to leave you with this, um, uh, ladies and gentlemen. This is the final pairing in the United States Open Championship. The players are Jack Nicklaus of North Palm Beach, Florida, and Jim Gallagher Jr. of Greenwood, Mississippi. Mr. Gallagher has the honor. Play away, please. That's awesome. That's a perfect way to end, Ronnie. I appreciate you spending some time with us. i got to get out to California, and we'll play some golf when I come out to uh, the Monterey area. Uh, you would be my guest. Thanks, Jim Gallagher, Jr. I've, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Well, that was a lot of fun to have Ron Reed uh, on the uh, podcast. He did a great job. Some great stories in that book. Uh, and if you want to get a copy of that, uh, Starting the U.S. Open from Shinnecock to Pebble Beach. That's written by Ron Reed, R-E-A-D. And you can find... The book at www.ronreed.com. I think it's also on Amazon, but get that copy. Some great stories in there, especially uh, uh, if you look at all the years. He was a starter at the U.S. Open. We appreciate him spending some time with us, and he lives in one of the prettiest parts of the world, uh, Pebble Beach, Monterey Peninsula, I should say. So uh, appreciate him being with us. Uh, and one thing we didn't talk about was the dreamers section, and he talks about the, the qualifying, and he, uh, that's one of the unique things of the U.S. Open is – Anybody can put their entry in as long as their handicaps, uh, uh, I think, two or less. And, and there was a story. Andy Dillard uh, played at Oklahoma State, got off to a hot start at Pebble Beach the one year. No one had ever heard of Andy Dillard. I did because I played against him in college. But uh, that was a cool story, going through all the processes. Uh, and there was a guy named Henry J. Brown uh, who, uh, at the time, wanted a special uh, called in, and they had, had the address. He was actually in jail for uh, some something and, and uh, wanted to send his entry in. Uh, of course, they wanted he wanted to be out for a little bit. Uh, I'll let you get to the book to find out uh, to go try to qualify. The next year he was out and, and tried to qualify. So uh, that's a cool story. But so many great stories in there, things that you may never heard of, uh, and it's worth the, to check out that book. Uh, special thanks to Steve Azar for allowing us to use his music. You can find Steve at steveazar.com. And V.J. Trollio's book, Only One Shot. It's available at Amazon. Go ahead and get your copy of that. Uh, and whether it's life or golf, you may have only one shot. you got to make it count. I'm Jim Gallagher, Jr. Go make it count today. Have a good one. We'll talk to you. Until next time. Fertile fields of flatlands and hills raised by anything, whatever a farmer can dream. Slug burgers, shrimp ball, catfish fried up in oil. Oh, good gosh, you mighty, just a husk of hot tamale now. Now that's Mississippi. Mm. America's music birthplace, where rock and roll was made out of our gospel and blues.